My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are facing many different struggles talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Brenane Lloyd. When the nuclear age exploded into world consciousness at the end of the Second World War, What followed was an era that combined deep fear of global annihilation with an optimism about endless energy and technological possibility that today seems naive and creepy. The downsides of the nuclear age are many. There's the enduring, deep, and unavoidable institutional connection between nuclear energy and nuclear weapons, which of course the nuclear energy industry works hard to downplay. There's the ever-present risk of catastrophic failure of power plants, encapsulated by place names like Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, and Fukushima. And, of course, there's the waste. Every step of the nuclear chain generates radioactive waste. Low-level but still dangerous radioactive material is produced in exploring for, mining, and refining the uranium that is used as fuel, And once that fuel is used in a nuclear reactor, it becomes a highly radioactive and toxic mix of different isotopes that will be dangerous to any living thing that comes near it for, at a conservative guess, hundreds of thousands of years. This means that every nuclear reactor generating power today is making high-level radioactive waste that we will have to manage and prevent from causing harm to ourselves and to the rest of the biosphere, that our children will have to manage and prevent from causing harm to the rest of the biosphere, and that human beings will have to responsibly look after, basically, forever. Certainly for a far longer duration than any human institution has ever lasted. This high-level radioactive waste continues to be produced, and really no country in the world has figured out what to do with it. Northwatch is a multi-issue environmental, social justice, and peace organization, with a heavy focus on the environment, that has existed in northeastern Ontario since the late 1980s. And Brenane Lloyd has worked with Northwatch from the start. And all along, the nuclear waste issue has been a high priority for them. For decades, various sites in northern Ontario have been suggested as potential destinations for all of Canada's high-level nuclear waste. And for decades, Northwatch has been actively responding to efforts by government and industry to turn that potential into a reality, particularly one long process in the first 10 years of the organization's existence, and a separate one in the last 10 years. The current process is being driven by the nuclear industry itself under the umbrella of the Nuclear Waste Management Organization, or NWMO. Northwatch's response to the current process has mostly been via a project called No Nuclear Waste. That's K-N-O-W. It brings together a variety of issue-based organizations, along with individuals, networks, and organizations in the local communities that are being subjected to this industry process. Its focus is on empowering residents and communities and responding to the information needs of those concerned about the hazards of transporting and storing high-level nuclear waste. Lloyd has serious concerns about the interim measures that are currently used to store high-level nuclear waste and about the industry's vision for what to do with it in the longer term. 
She's particularly concerned with the current process, and argues that it is a big mistake to let the industry be in the driver's seat. Instead, she argues, we need some serious efforts to develop policy and regulation by the federal and provincial governments, which is currently not happening. Lloyd speaks with me about the nuclear industry, about the realities of dealing with nuclear waste, about the current flawed process, and about the ways in which no nuclear waste is informing and empowering residents and communities. She spoke with me from North Bay, Ontario. My name is Brunane Lloyd, and I work with a group called Northwatch, and we are a coalition of groups and individual members in northeastern Ontario. So our main focus is that geographic region, so north of the north shore of Lake Huron from the Quebec border over to the Superior Coast. And we're a generalist organization, so we work on a variety of issues, all related to our region. So mining, forestry, pipelines, and nuclear projects, nuclear waste projects in particular. But also earlier in the nuclear chain, we have a couple of hundred million tons of radioactive tailings left behind from uranium mining in Elliott Lake. And we have the world's largest uranium refinery on the north shore of Lake Huron and Blind River. We work as both a volunteer and an on-contract basis, but we're not a professional organization. We're member-run, we're not staff-run. We've been around since the late 1980s, and we formed in the late 1980s out of two different regional networks, which were very informal networks of all local volunteer or district-based volunteer groups, environmental groups, development groups, peace groups, safe energy groups, and we formed as a coalition because we had two very large government industry processes about to be launched. One was an environmental assessment of how logging happens on crown lands in Ontario, and the other was the Federal Environmental Assessment Review of Atomic Energy of Canada Limited's Geological Disposal Concept which was in more regular terms a proposal by a federal crown corporation to bury high-level nuclear waste in the Canadian Shield, i.e. in Northern Ontario. And we saw as local district-based volunteer groups that it was going to be very difficult to engage in these really large processes as local groups. And so we really wanted to combine efforts and share our analysis, share our resources, and develop a regionally representative voice to participate in these hearings and to support the participation of local groups and individuals. And so that's why we created Northwatch. For the first decade, we were very much occupied with this federal review of the nuclear waste burial scheme. And for the last decade, we've been very much occupied with the aftermath of that, which is a new organization replacing Atomic Energy of Canada Limited. We have the Nuclear Waste Management Organization and a next generation effort to find a location in Northern Ontario to bury high level nuclear waste. And so on that issue, we work with local groups other NGOs, other safe energy groups, and we organized that work through a project called No Nuclear Waste, which is a public interest information project about nuclear waste burial in Canada, and it's really catalyzed by and focused on this push again to bury high-level nuclear waste in Northern Ontario. But it's very difficult to separate one nuclear issue from the whole chain of nuclear issues or one waste issue from the chain of radioactive waste issues. So we do work more broadly than the high-level waste burial scheme. There are different 
categories or types of radioactive waste or nuclear waste. There's low-level radioactive waste created through uranium mining, milling, refining, fuel fabrication into reactor operation. And then at reactor operation, there's low-level, medium, intermediate level, and high-level waste created. Low-level waste, you could be in the vicinity of that waste without any kind of a barrier between you and the waste, and you wouldn't have immediate health effects. Low-level waste have longer-term and chronic health effects. High-level waste is also called irradiated fuel or spent fuel or nuclear fuel waste. High-level waste is created when you take a fuel bundle. A fuel bundle is a cylindrical package of uranium pellets. So the uranium has been mined, it's gone through all these stages of processing, and at the point that it goes into the reactor, it's uranium. And uranium does have low levels of radiation, and it is a very toxic material. When that uranium goes into the reactor, it's bombarded with neutrons and fissioning takes place. The atom splits and splits and splits and splits again. And that creates lots of energy, which generates heat, which then boils water, which turns a turbine, which creates electricity. And when that fuel, which went in as uranium, comes out as a radiated fuel, it has hundreds of different radioactive isotopes, radioactive elements in it. So these 250, 300 different radioactive ingredients in the high-level waste all have different times that they take to go through what's called a decay chain. At the end of that decay chain, they're called stable. And so at that point, they're no longer radioactive. They're still toxic, so still have to be isolated from the environment. The time it takes for those wastes to go through that decay chain, those hundreds of different ingredients to go through that decay chain, is really beyond our ability to grasp, certainly beyond my ability to grasp. We're talking hundreds of thousands and thousands of years. So these wastes are very lethal, many of them very radioactive, and they must be isolated from the environment and from humans and from all living things into perpetuity. So what do they do with that high-level radioactive waste at the moment? Well, now what's done is the uranium bundle goes into the reactor and it's in the reactor for 18 months. Then it comes out of the reactor and it's removed using robots in an underwater process. So it goes from the reactor core into what's called the irradiated fuel bay or the spent fuel bay or the cooling pond or the cooling bay. Basically, it's a large swimming pool in the reactor station. And so that recently generated high-level waste moves into the cooling pool. Bernane went on to describe how the waste is supposed to be kept in a cooling pool for a certain number of years, and then, once it's cooled, it is to get moved to a dry storage facility that's also on the same site as the reactor. There are a number of problems she identified with how this is currently done, however. For one thing, the industry has been leaving more irradiated fuel in the wet storage for longer than it's supposed to, which is less safe than moving it to dry storage in a timely manner. As well, the dry storage facilities at some Ontario reactors have not been located on the reactor site in a way that maximizes safety. In the case of both Darlington and Pickering, the dry storage containers are on the shore of Lake Ontario. 
So that brings risk as well, more risk than would have been there if those dry storage facilities had been placed further inland on the back side of the property rather than the front side of the property. So that more exposure, it just means more risk. It means more risk from weather events. It means more risk from, you know, terrorist attacks. When you're dealing with these materials, in our view, we should be looking constantly for risk reduction. So that's the state of the waste now. And while we argue strenuously against the Nuclear Waste Management Organization's Nuclear Waste Burial Scheme, it's not because we think that the status quo is all good. There are a lot of problems with the way the waste is managed at the reactor station in its current condition, and it has to be there for the next several decades, regardless of what happens with anything that the NWMO might be proposing. And so we really think that that needs immediate attention. Give an overview of the first process related to high-level nuclear waste that Northwatch was involved in in the 1980s and 1990s. Go back to 1977, there was a three-month commission tasked by the federal government to look at the challenge of how do we manage nuclear waste in the future. And those three men after three months said, well, we should bury it in the Canadian Shield. And if that doesn't work out, it should be buried in salt formations in southwestern Ontario. And the federal government said, okay, great. Atomic Energy of Canada Limited, go work that out. And so Atomic Energy of Canada Limited, which was the Crown Corporation at that time, generously funded through taxpayers' dollars to promote and develop nuclear technologies. They set about, first of all, looking for a location, and they investigated several communities in northern Ontario. And then they switched horses, and they moved from investigating sites to developing this generic concept. I think it's fair to summarize their reasons for doing that, having been the massive oppositions they met in those communities. And so they began developing this geological disposal concept. And so it was 500 to 1,000 meters below the surface in copper or titanium in an unnamed, undescribed location, a large rock formation that had certain characteristics. They developed this concept, produced an environmental impact statement to back up their claim that this geological repository would keep most of the waste in for a long time. That was the fine print, was that it would be most of it for a long time. Generally, they described it as being this is a place to isolate the waste and keep it safe from intruders and so on. It went through a 10-year review, 13 months of hearings in three phases over five provinces, and then that panel came out with their report. The question that they were asked was, has Atomic Energy of Canada Limited demonstrated their geological disposal concept to be safe and acceptable? And they answered it. They said no. On the acceptability side, there is no public acceptance for this notion. On the safety side, there are two aspects. There's a social perception of safety and there's a technical definition of safety. And on the social side, they have failed. On the technical side, they said, and I might not get this word for word, on balance demonstrated to be feasible for a conceptual stage of development, which the nuclear industry says is approval. I call it a faint praise approval. Basically, they said that it had not been demonstrated that it would fail faster and more furiously than ACL was predicting. 
it was fine print that you had to get to. But finally, about a year into the hearings, Dr. Dormus, their lead scientist, said, yes, it will leak. And it will. These repository designs, not even the industry claims that they will contain all of the waste for all of the time which it is a hazard. They just say it'll take a long time and only a little get out. Well, even that is subject to debate. So the panel came out and said, not demonstrated to be safe and acceptable. And they made recommendations. The first one said that the next steps should be undertaken by an independent agency, which is arm's length from government and industry. And they also said that there should be a framework for the participation of Aboriginal people developed by Aboriginal people. Those were the two top recommendations. And the federal government said, thank you very much. We accept your report on principle. And then they proceeded to do pretty much the opposite of what the panel had recommended. And they created in 2002 with the Nuclear Fuel Waste Act, a set of instructions to the nuclear industry, which said, go and create an organization made up of yourselves to have the next go at dealing with this waste. The industry then constituted itself as the Nuclear Waste Management Organization, or NWMO. They spent a few years figuring out a framework for a general approach that was not identical to the earlier AECL version that had not received full approval, but that was largely similar. This framework included processes to determine a method and a location for storing high-level nuclear waste in an underground repository, as well as what Bernane described as a marketing exercise to try and find a community that would give something the industry could claim as consent. And the next step was the NWMO acting on that framework, and I asked how the No Nuclear Waste Project initially came together in that context. Well, it came out of a series of conversations, collaborations, and ongoing effort around mounting the response and the supports needed as the Nuclear Waste Management Organization began their campaign to find a location for a nuclear waste burial facility. It's very informal. There are a number of different non-governmental organizations that we work with. We work a lot with the Canadian Environmental Law Association and with organizations around the region and in the local communities. The project really continues to evolve and to change as the NWMO campaign continues to change. You know, we've gone from 22 communities, now we're down to seven communities. We've gone from a very general approach by the NWMO to now a more tailored to each community kind of approach in terms of the industry campaign to get consent. So it really evolved through those experiences and through following a very basic mandate to support local efforts to be able to assess and reply to the NWMO's initiatives at the local level and at the regional level as well. How do the relationships with the local and regional groups work in practical terms? It's a fairly informal and iterative relationship. It includes a lot of just back and forth, on-the-phone conversations, email conversations. We spend a lot of time referring people to other resources, other people they can talk to. And we spend a lot of time just talking to people about what's going on. What are their concerns? What does this mean? What does that mean? What's coming next? Really acting almost as a translation service between what people see happening in the communities or the materials the NWMO is presenting in their communities, 
acting as a translation service so people can actually then reply to that. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, some of the information is technical and some of the information is, I guess, oblique might be the word. The presentation by NWMO is not always as direct as it would need to be for people to be able to necessarily find the answers they're looking for. We also do presentations to community liaison committees, which are the NWMO and municipal selected local advisory committees that are in place and they provide ongoing advice to the NWMO on how to bring their NWMO message to the community. And they also sort of act as the NWMO's, I guess, focus group in the community for different materials they're rolling out, different ideas they're doing. And then we also sometimes Sometimes have events, speakers' events, film nights that are hosted either by one of the local groups or by Northwatch or sometimes an informal combination of those things. And then we also do a series of webinars every year. We do a concentrated series in February of every year when it's not a particularly good time for traveling in Northern Ontario. And we do a series of webinars where we focus on different topics. We look at the NWMO program for the year, do an overview, and then we pull out a couple of particular topics and get presenters on those topics. Those are the main activities of the project. You know, it varies year by year in terms of what the focus is and who's participating and so on. Fundamentally, what the No Nuclear Waste Information Project is about is enabling residents to unbundle the materials that they're being presented with, unbundle the messages their communities are receiving from the nuclear industry and others, and then develop their own capacity and their own ability to respond and speak in their own voice about these issues and about the prospect of a deep geologic repository for all of Canada's high-level waste being cited in their community, in their area, or in their region. So is it fair to say that all of the communities that remain in the NWMO process have at least some level of opposition to the idea of storing high-level nuclear waste in their area? Yes. And in some cases, there's an organized visible group. And in some cases, it's a much more informal network. But yes, there's not any of the communities on the NWMO list now that don't have people expressing active concerns and opposition to those. There is dissent in every one of those communities. And we're down to seven communities now. Of the 15 communities who have been removed from the NWMO list, there was also dissent. And I think that there's been an interesting pattern of a group of residents becoming more organized, more vocal, and then NWMO removing that community from their list of communities. Really, the NWMO interest is in finding a place where they will not be seen as imposing these wastes on a local community. And so it makes sense that they drop communities when people start to organize. I don't know if they realize that there is opposition to the depth that there is in all of these communities. Because the NWMO program is so long and drawn out, like at this point, there's not another decision that a community can make. The communities have never made decisions. So the municipalities invited the NWMO in to tell them about their program, and that then took them into what the NWMO calls their Learn More program, and they went through step by step by step, and there's no point where there's actually a decision to be made by the community about whether they're in or out of the NWMO process 
For several more years, according to the NWMO timeline, we hear from a lot of people that, well, they're going to follow it, they're going to keep track on it, but they're not going to waste their energy right now, but there's no way that waste is coming to their community or to their area or with any consent from their municipality. So given your concerns with what's being done in terms of interim storage and your concerns with the process that's supposed to find a long-term solution to storing high-level nuclear waste, what would you suggest that the industry do with it? Well, here's the thing. The industry should be sitting back and the decision makers, the federal and provincial government, should be getting active on this file. It's not up to the industry to decide. The industry has created the waste, true. The industry should be responsible for managing it in the lowest risk possible way. But it's really the decision makers. It's the province because they direct Ontario power generation. And it's the federal government because they are the nuclear regulators. They need to get their house in order. You know, we've talked mostly about the high-level waste issue, but we have an incredible regulatory and policy void within the nuclear sector. The federal government needs to start over. And what we need is we need a clear set of priorities and directions, and we need to start focusing on the waste, first things first, where it is now. And the industry should not be in the driver's seat in terms of the policy and regulatory decisions that need to be made. They want to solve what for them is a massive public relations problem. But this isn't a public relations problem. This is a safety problem. It's a health problem. It's a social justice problem. It's an environmental security problem. But it shouldn't be dealt with as a public relations problem. And right now we've got the people in charge who, for them, it is a public relations problem. We have a real policy and regulatory gap around things like even waste categorization, waste acceptance criteria. We have no standards. There's no measure by which to judge any of the industry's proposals. We have no standards that would say, well, this is the kind of performance that we would need to see from Project X, whether it's going to be a dry storage container or a deep geologic repository. We don't have standards. That is a really, really big problem, and that's really where we need to focus first. And that's the job of the elected decision makers. That's not the job of the industry. The really big thing that needs to happen is we need a federal regulator that acts as an independent regulator and puts safety first, not just in a slogan that they actually do it. Ontario Power Generation is the largest partner in the Nuclear Waste Management Organization. And we need a provincial government that takes the Crown Corporation, Ontario Power Generation, in hand and says, you've got to do better. You've got to stop pushing and promoting projects as if this was a public relations project. You have been listening to my interview with Brenane Lloyd about the No Nuclear Waste Project. To learn more about it, go to nonuclearwaste.ca. That's K-N-O-W nuclearwaste.ca. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. 
Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week.